Good morning. Our God reigns. It's the first one that we sang. Believe it? Do you believe that our God is all powerful? Do you believe it enough, as we just got through talking about in leaders group, do you believe it enough to give up your agenda? Okay. Do you believe it enough that when you read the newspaper and you see what's going on, that you don't panic? You don't wonder, where's God? But instead ask the question, God, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to respond? Um, One of the things um, that as I was walking over here from leaders group and listening to the first song and everything, I was reminded of the gospel of, the very end of the gospel of John. Um, Jesus, the last, I think it's the last chapter of John. Jesus, um, the disciples have gone up to Galilee. It's after the resurrection. They're out fishing. Haven't caught anything all night. Typical. Um, left on their own, they don't do very well. But um, they're out fishing and... Jesus shows up on the shore and tells them to throw their nets out on one side of the boat. And Peter recognizes that it's Jesus and comes swimming in to meet Jesus. And they have this confrontation or this discussion. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? And I guess I'd ask you that question, do you love Jesus? Do you want to be his disciple? Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I do. He says, then go feed my sheep. And he asks again, looking around, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep, feed my lambs. He asks him three times. And there's lots of ways to to translate. and, And there's lots of sermons that have looked at all the different implications of that passage and all the wording in that passage. But one that I read a couple years ago that I really liked, that has always stood out to me, was that it was almost as if Jesus looked at Peter and said to Peter, Peter, do you love me more than fishing? I mean, that's what you've been doing, Peter. Do you love me more than fishing? Because I have something for you to do that's more than fishing. Are you willing to give up your fishing to follow me? Peter, do you love me more than these other people? Do you love me more than the popularity? Because Peter had just gotten through denying Jesus three times, remember? Because he was afraid of the people in the courtyard. He was afraid of what they might think. Peter, do you love me more than the opinions of others? Now, that's a huge one. Do you love me enough to be persecuted? 
then go feed my sheep. But then the last question gets to the heart of it. Peter, do you love me more than life itself? Because Peter, someday they're going to take you where you don't want to go and you're going to die a death you don't want to die. Are you willing to do that for me? In a sense, those three questions almost get to the heart of what we're talking about today. Peter, do you love me enough to be willing to suffer for me? Do you love Jesus enough to be willing to suffer for him? And in a sense, without knowing who Jesus is, the answer is no. But if I recognize who Jesus is, if I recognize that he is the all-powerful creator, controller, sustainer of the universe who loves me more than I could ever imagine loving myself, who's willing to give his life for me that I might ultimately find life in him, if I realize that he can be trusted in his power and his love, and his presence, then the answer is yes. See? See? Peter knew that resurrected Jesus who died for him, and he said, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I'm willing to go where you call me. And so 1 Peter 1 says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect. I love this next line. Strangers in the world. Do you see yourself as a stranger in the world? I want to make my home in this world, thank you very much. Peter gets it. Strangers in this world. My home is not in this world. I am a stranger in this world. To God's elect, strangers in the world scattered throughout the area. I'm not going to read those names. Anyway, people who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. You've been chosen. Jesus died thinking of you. I love that line. There's a a line in Isaiah that I've always loved that that Jesus has your name tattooed on the palms of his hands. He chose you. You know, and and when I hear that, I always kind of, well, what about, or, you know, I I will not allow myself to sit in the fact that he chose me often enough. Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Been made holy. That's huge too. You have been 
made holy through what Jesus did on a cross. You know, we're talking about suffering. We're going to talk about a couple different things about suffering today. But one of the things I'm going to say is you do not suffer for your sins. Jesus has already done that. Okay? Jesus is, you know, God is not going, all right, you did wrong, so I'm going to punish you. He might discipline you in order that you might understand what's going on, in order that you might see. But it's not to make you pay for your sins. That's already happened. Okay? Your sins have been paid for. You have been made holy. Through the sanctifying work of the Spirit's, Spirit for obedience to Jesus and the sprinkling by his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth. We can start all over again into a living hope to the resurrection of Jesus and an inheritance that can never perish. You already have an inheritance that's been set aside for you. And it will not go away. It cannot perish or spoil or fade. It's kept in heaven for you. Personally, I want it down here now. God's going, no, if I gave it to you now, you'd waste it all so it's up here in heaven for you. Okay. And through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. Where are you looking? You're looking at the here and now, you're looking ahead. You're looking what is to come. Are you looking at the end of the game? You know, as I say that, I I think, you know, oftentimes we do, we have a tendency to want to just look right now. Um, I'm a football fanatic. I love football. Um, I don't, there were, I think it was the Kansas City Chiefs a couple weeks ago who were down so much in the first half of the game. Then they go into halftime and it's like the game's over. And you could turn around and look at that and kind of go, my life right now, it's over. And God's going, will you quit looking now? Look at the end of the game. There's still 60 seconds. There's still a whole 30 minutes of playing. You know, look at the end. If we don't keep our eyes on the end, then we're going to lose in the middle. And then Peter writes this, In this you greatly rejoice, though for now, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, your faith that is greater worth than gold, your relationship with God is of greater worth than gold. See? Jesus died for that faith. For that relationship. Greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proven genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus is revealed. You go through faith... You go through struggles. You go through various trials so that Jesus may be glorified. 
so that your faith may be refined. Okay. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible, inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. See, as Peter is writing, and this whole letter ends up being about trials at one level or another, he's writing to encourage this church, letting them know where to fix their eyes, not on what's going on in the various trials, but on the end game. Because he says, trials are going to come. I, I like the fact that we're doing um, this study the week after we got through with Ecclesiastes because Ecclesiastes basically told us over and over again that if we keep our eyes on this world, we're going to discover that it's all meaningless. That the only meaning is really found in God and, and that's a mystery. We don't really get it. We're not going to get it until we get with him, but we can know him enough and trust him enough in his love and in his power that we keep our eyes fixed on him. We, we live in faith, okay, in fear of God, in awe of him. We keep our eyes fixed on this powerful God and then obey his commands, basically are obedient to his calling upon our lives. See? Keller, when he talks about some of his sermons on suffering, says he, he, some of them are, in the whole area on, on discipleship. And, and in one of them, he talks about, he's talking, doing a series of sermons on discipleship. And he said, do you want to grow in Jesus? And he does one sermon and he calls it active growth. Okay. Well, you know, the active growth, I mean, that's coming to Bible study. It's reading books. It's having a prayer time. It's, you know, doing all those active things. And then he has a second sermon and he calls it passive growth. And it's not this, that I just kind of sit there and let stuff happen to me. It's more of what God does to me than what I do. And the passive growth is actually harder growth. You know, and, and at one level in the sermon, he's basically saying, are you willing to go through the passive growth? Are you willing to let God bring you up into what he has for you? Are you willing to let him be your loving father who in a sense disciplines you or at times puts you in places that are a little bit over your head so that you grow, which are rather uncomfortable at times. See? You know, he says that passive growth of being willing to trust God in the day-to-day situations of my life Asking God, what are you doing here and how do you want me to respond? And what are, you wanting for me to, what are you wanting me to see about myself that I might need to change? He says, that's the harder growth. That's the growth that comes from various trials and struggles. Okay. Am I willing to allow them? Will I yield to him? Will I trust him to work in my life in what he's doing? Jesus came into this world 
to die. He came into this world to be for us and with us. And at one level, he comes to us and says, are you willing to do what I did? See? Are you willing to be me to other people? Are you willing to be with people and for people? And what does that look like? I I love Philippians 2. Okay. Your mind should be the same as Christ Jesus, who having everything, gave up everything in order to come to be with us and was obedient to God even to the point of dying on a cross. And so God resurrected him and put all things underneath him. He gave him all things. So I can celebrate that for Jesus, but then he turns around and says, but your mind should be the same as Jesus to give up my agenda in order to be with people and for people and to die for people. See? Suffering has value. Okay? But as we get into this real fast, I, I want to tell you first and foremost that suffering is a mystery. Um, there's, um, let's put up slide five, I think. Um, suffering's a mystery. And one of the things as I was beginning, to, one of the things I'll, I'll let you know, over, you guys read Ecclesiastes over Christmas. We had initially planned for you to read Job over Christmas. But then we decided that was just a little bit too long. Okay? Um, and so we actually were going to use this suffering thing right after Christmas, and we kind of put it off, which I'm, I'm kind of glad that it worked out this way. Um, but Job's a fascinating book. Okay? Um, because what happens in Job is that we get a hint of this prologue, of this opening scene between God and Satan. And God basically, and Satan basically challenges God and says, hey, the only reason why Job likes you is because you're nice to him. Okay? Quit being nice to him and see what happens. See? And and in a sense, I think that's where this first statement, pain comes as a direct attack of a hostile force whose design is to coerce men not, is, is to coerce men to rebel against God. Satan uses pain to get us to rebel against God, to get us to question God. See? And, and that's what we see in this, this first chapter. And there's, there's always that temptation in the midst of suffering. You know, that we give in and, and yell at God. But Job doesn't do that. And, and instead, you know, he, he takes the suffering to God. Now, one of the problems about reading Job, and this is why I want to start with this in our discussion about, about suffering, is that all of his friends come to Job and tell Job why he's suffering. Okay? And I don't know if you've ever suffered and had somebody come and tell you why you're suffering. 
I don't know if you've ever suffered and wanted an answer as to why you're suffering. Okay, or decided you know why you're suffering. Okay. And, and the problem with Job is that in some instances, some of what Job's friends say are actually kind of true in certain situations. But not in the situation Job is presently in. And the whole thing about Job is that the friends are basically all wrong for trying to tell Job what to do. And the friends all get in trouble with God. Job, on the other hand, is going and railing at God and saying, I want an audience and we're going to have this out. And the person who's lifted up at the end of the book is Job. Because what Job does in the midst of his suffering is seek God. He waits on God. He allows his suffering to be a mystery. And at the end of the day, when God does show up, God never tells Job why he's suffering. All he does is show him more of himself of his power and of his greatness. And, and Job goes, you know what? I'm sorry I ever even questioned. Whatever you want to do, you can do. See? Um, the friends argue that it's punishment for sin, that it's disciplinary. God argues that suffering is a mystery. But it's not beyond God's sovereign rule, nor does it mar the wonders of God's creation. Nothing is beyond God's authority. If God is allowing something to exist today, he is doing something in the midst of it. That's not saying everything that exists is good. It's just saying God is working in the midst of it if he allows it. And he's turning it and can use it because he's all-powerful. And that that's the promise that even, even the worst of the worst, death can be used by him. To bring life. See? That's what the cross teaches us. That's what Jesus teaches when he says, you know, if, if the seed's going to bear fruit, it has to grow to the, it has to, you know, fall to the ground and it has to die in order to spring up and bear fruit. See? He's saying, even death God uses for life. God is all powerful and he's using all things for his purposes, even if we don't get it because it's a mystery. And our calling is not to explain the mystery but to have such an understanding of the power and the greatness of God and the love of God that we trust him in the midst of it and are obedient to him in the midst of it. Um, Final scene, Job discovers that the annoyance of suffering dissolves in the affirming warmth of the presence of the divine presence of God. Let's go to the next slide. Um, The purpose of the poem is to challenge mankind to endure its lot with an unadulterated confidence in God. Okay? Um, Where am I going to get down to? Um, One of the dynamics of Job's deep sea, this is just kind of fun of... um, Yeah, we can keep talking there. Um, Anyway, you can read that. You'll get these later. Um, Suffering's a mystery. Okay, um, I know the one I was looking for. Uh, 
Huh, I can't see where it was. One, one, of, the, one of the comments, one of the slides that, I, that is up there is that Job ends up trusting God and all he sees is the bigness of God in humanity. Okay. We see God at the cross and the grace. We have even more reason to trust God. See, so in the midst of suffering, our call isn't to explain it all. But to trust God's power and love and presence in, in the midst of it. Um, Eli Weisel um, was born a, a Jewish family in R- Romania, World War II stuff, okay? He was the only teenager when he and his family were rounded up by the Nazis and taken first to Auschwitz and then to um, Buchenwald. In his book, Night, he gives a terrifying and intimate account of the increasing horrors he endured, the death of his parents and his eight year old sister the loss of his innocence by barbaric hands. In the foreword of the book, this one guy writes of his encounter with Eli. On that most horrific day, even among all those other bad days, when the child witnessed the hanging, yes, of another child, who he tells us had the face of a sad angel, he heard someone behind him groan, for God's sake, where is God? And from within me, I heard a voice answer. Where he is, this is where. Hanging from the gallows. Francis goes on. And I who believe that God is love, what answer was there to give to my young interrogator? What did I say to him? Did I speak to him of another Jew, the crucified brother, who perhaps resembled him and whose cross conquered the world? Did I explain to him that what had been a stumbling block for his faith had become a cornerstone for mine? I love that line. What is a stumbling block to one's faith has become a cornerstone. Because rather than saying, where is God? He saw where God was. He saw God on the gallows himself. He saw God taking on death himself. He saw God weeping and crying and being with him. And that connection between the cross and human suffering remains, in my view, the key to the unfathomable mystery in which the faith of his childhood was lost. That is what I should have said to the Jewish child, but all I could do was embrace him and weep. His words point to the most profound answer to the question, where is God? God is in Christ. He's on the cross, bearing our sins in his body. Now the crucified is among his people. Not only has he suffered for you, now he suffers with you. Okay. We see that with Paul, right? Um, Paul on that road to, to Damascus when Jesus shows up and says, Paul, why are you crucifying me? See? As Paul crucified the church, Jesus is going, you're crucifying me. Jesus is still suffering with us. So at one level, if Jesus allows us to go through suffering, we need to see that it's a profound mystery, but we also need to see and hold on to that he is with us in the suffering, that he is weeping with us as we weep. Okay. Suffering becomes, um, it's not only a mystery, it becomes an opportunity for God to work. Um, Keller says um, that basically... Without trouble, there's no growth. 
Okay. Um. Um. Yeah. Just leave it there. Without trouble, there's there's no there's no growth. Okay. Um, C.S. Lewis says that pain is a megaphone. Okay. That suffering is a megaphone. It causes us to change. Okay. In a sense, that gets to the discipline side of, of, of suffering. Okay. It, it shows us what we're trusting in. It shows us where we're going for security. It's showing where we're, we're trying to, to get our needs met sometimes. Okay. It, it gets our attention so we can take what's happening back to God and say, God, what do you want here? What are you doing here? Suffering you know, is, is like the refiner's fire. It, it, it separates the good from the bad in our lives. You know, one pastor said that God sometimes turns up the heat until he sees a reflection of himself in us. And that's his desire. We can't grow in the fruit of the Spirit without suffering. Okay? Okay. Quite honestly, I don't like patience. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. It means long-suffering. The ability to suffer long. No, thank you. Gentleness often comes out of a life that has suffered much. Suffering produces glory. Gives us substance and weight and the ability to endure. Suffering allows for pruning. Suffering enables us to have a heart like God's. One of the things that we were talking about in leadership today was, you know, um, one of the leaders shared how you know, they, they read the newspaper about human trafficking and their heart breaks. See, and God wants our heart to break like his heart breaks. Because when our heart breaks for the suffering of others the way his does, then we get off the dime and we do something about it with him and in his name. See, we become like Jesus In suffering, a lot of times God puts us in a position for we can do, so that we can do ministry. Um, you know, one of the things, two examples of that maybe, you know, one, one of the things growing up, um, I, I moved every couple of years growing up. And if you talk to my mother, she'll tell you how hard all those moves were. If you talk to me, I will tell you how I could look back and see God in each one of those moves. Those moves weren't easy. I remember one of them in particular. I walked across high school campus one day and went, ah, this is finally home. And I walked out, and my dad was waiting in the parking lot to take me home. And I said, what are you doing here? He says, I'm here to pick you up and take you home. And I said, I have the car. He said, oh, I want to make sure you came directly home. I knew exactly what was happening. We were moving yet again. But each time, God positioned me in a new place to teach me something new. I didn't want to do those moves. But he was in every one of them. Okay. Sometimes God positions us maybe with cancer so that we can end up 
in a hospital room or in a waiting room at a doctor's office to talk to somebody next to us. See? Am I willing to give up my agenda for God's agenda because there's something bigger going on than this meaningless life? Do I keep my eyes focused on God and what he's doing and the end game, or do I come back down? We suffer so that we can have compassion for the world. Sometimes suffering just comes out of persecution. But this is what happens when I suffer because of my testimony for Jesus. Then other people see the reality of Jesus. Wow, if you're willing to go through this for something, then maybe there's something to it. Which is why Paul writes, you know, in in a sense, my suffering is completing the work of Jesus, my suffering for you. See? I'm... In, in one sense, what's going on in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, you're studying some of that passages. What's going on in 2 Corinthians is that the Corinthians are looking at Paul and basically saying, hey, Paul, if you're really an apostle, you wouldn't suffer so much. And Paul's response is, it's because I'm an apostle that I suffer so much. Wow. There's a theology for you. See? I sometimes want to go to Jesus and say, okay, I'm yours, now make it all right now. And Paul's going, no, I'm working to make it all right for this kingdom that God is bringing. And I hope isn't in this world, it's in that kingdom that God is bringing, and I am working for that end game. See? So he's willing to be persecuted. He's willing to complete the work of Christ. He's willing to suffer so others see the reality of Christ. But the question then gets to be, in one sense, how do we get through suffering? We need to focus on God. We need to focus on his power and his greatness and his love. In a sense, we need to go to God like Job did. What are you doing? What do you want me to do? How do you want me to respond? And to be willing to wait patiently until God gives us an answer. We need to be willing to trust God's timing and his schedule. We need to be willing to be obedient. We need to continue to work to alleviate the sufferings of others. Um, One of the, um, Tim Keller in talking about suffering, talks about John Newton. And he writes this. Um, it's basically a letter that John Newton wrote. He's the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. That John Newton wrote to a friend. Your sister is much upon my mind. Her illness grieves me. Were it in my power... I would quickly remove it. The Lord can, and I hope will. When it is answered, the end, and and I, and I, the Lord can, and I hope will, when it is answered, the end for which he has sent it. I trust he has brought her to us for good. I wish you may be enabled to leave her and yourself and all your concerns in his hands. 
He has a sovereign right to do with as he pleases. And if we consider what we are, surely we shall confess we have no reason to complain. And to those who seek him, his sovereignty is exercised in a way of grace. And then Keller writes this, quoting, To those who seek him, his sovereignty, his power in your life is always exercised in the way of, life, in the way of love. All shall work together for good. Get this. Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. Everything is needful that he sends. If God allows something to occur, then he is going to use it for his purposes. And if he withholds something, we don't need it in the first place. Anything in your life that's there, you need it. Anything that is not there in your life, you say, I need it, you really don't. Otherwise, you're saying, God, I'm smarter than you about this. Everything is needful about what he sends. Nothing can be needful about what he withholds. You have need of patience, and if you ask, the Lord will give. But there is to be no settled peace till our will is in a measured subdued. Look upon him as a physician who is graciously undertaken to heal your soul of the worst of sicknesses, sin. Yield to his prescriptions and fight against every thought that would represent a desirable, a desirable to be permitted to choose, a desire to, to permit to choose for yourself. And so it's what he's saying is trust God in the mystery of what you're going through. Trust God in the midst of suffering. Last week, um, this is, I think it's um, slide two for a minute. Um, last week, we, we talked about all the various ways that people look at suffering. You know, um, oh, no, go to next slide one, uh, next one, slide three then, that one. Um, how we deny it, how we want to endure it, how we want to pretend like it doesn't exist, how we want to do away with it. Um, and the problem with all of these is, is that they deny God, and they deny the reality of the world that we live in. This world is winding down. Our bodies are dying. See, Suffering is. But what God is doing is he's saying that I have the power, even in the very midst of suffering, to be taking everything and working it to my glorious recreation of life itself. So rather than being surprised by suffering, in a sense, lean into it. Let God bring fruit out of it. Don't try and explain it or run from it but allow it to have his work upon your life. But then I would give you one other kind of challenge. And it goes back to the beginning of Peter. We have suffering that God uses in our life. But then we're also called to be Christ to other people. 
So will you also be willing to suffer on behalf of another? To give up your desires and your wants on behalf of another? To be with and for others? Because in the midst of suffering, God is not only making ourselves more like him. In the midst of suffering, as we suffer with others, we bring God's love and God's redemption and God's life to others. Discipleship is about following Jesus. It's about being Jesus' hands and feet in this world. Are you willing to be his disciple. Let's pray. Lord, we'd just as soon not suffer. But thank you. Thank you that even in suffering, you bring hope. Thank you that you've shown us the end game. Thank you that we can trust in you. Lord, may we live in mystery and be obedient even when we don't understand because we're so aware of your love and your power and your presence. To you be all glory and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a good morning.